31 years ago today, Ellen and I were engaged. And we chose Valentine's Day because it was about a year from our first date. And we wanted to spend a year getting to know each other as friends before committing to marriage. And that Valentine's Day 31 years ago was a very special day. Uh, the meal that we had at the restaurant was just uh, delicious. Uh, the live music was very romantic. Uh, the dozen roses were delivered right on time. Uh, the ring fit Ellen's hand perfectly. And then, of course, best of all, she said yes. And what a special time it was. Then the bill came. And the romance immediately was shattered by reality because I realized I did not have enough money to pay the bill. And I did not own a credit card. And so I had to ask Ellen to fork over some money to pay the bill. I was so glad she said yes before all that happened. You know what she did? She pulled out her purse and she said, how much is it? And uh, I knew right then, I'm getting a really good woman. She has never since called me a cheapskate, never said I married a loser. She just pulled out her wallet and said, how much do you need, and handed over the money. What a woman. What a woman. Now, I want to say this morning, that was actually very good training for marriage. It really was, because there's the ideal... And then there's the real, isn't there? And the real uh, intrudes on the ideal very quickly after you get married. Ellen found out very fast, my future husband doesn't have any money. And that's been true most of our marriage. Uh, most of our marriage, we've pretty much lived from paycheck to paycheck, just scraping by. But here we are, 31 years later, laughing about what happened very glad we got married and still working at it. You know, somebody has said this, marriage is 90% hard work and 10% romantic episodes. And I think that's exactly right. Somebody else said marriage is the art of two incompatible people learning to live compatibly. And that's true. Ellen and I are very different in many ways. We're incompatible in many ways. We found that out after we got married. But we've been learning how to live compatibly. Now, how couples do that depends on whether or not they follow God's design. Now, this morning, I want to begin just a few more messages, this time in the New Testament. We've been looking uh, exclusively at what the Old Testament says about marriage, but now we have to come to the New Testament because there are some additional things we need to see as we look at God's design. And so I want to bring just a few more messages entitled, God's Design for Family Life. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. Uh, turn to the middle of your New Testament where you can find the epistles. Find Colossians. And let's look together in chapter 3. I want to read verses 18 through 21. And then we're going to start this morning where the Apostle Paul starts with the wife's role in marriage. And then we'll look later on at the husband and children and parents. So notice what the Word of God says to us this morning. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases God. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now let's start this morning, shall we, in this message with the wife's role. And I want to ask four questions here of verse 18 so that we can understand what God is calling Christian women to in marriage, all right? Here's the first question. Why are wives addressed first? Why are wives addressed first? Well, if we think this morning it's because Paul is picking on them or squelching them or putting them in their place, we could not be more wrong. This text here in Colossians 3 is what is known as a household code. And they were very common in the first century for the good order of the family. But here's what we need to understand. Greek and Roman codes gave absolute rule to husbands and wives were not even addressed. Let me read for you what it was like in the first century in Jewish culture and in Greek culture for women. Listen to this. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. The possession of her husband. Just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods, she had no legal rights, whatever. And in Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to market. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her there was demanded complete servitude and chastity, under both Jewish and Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. And then come here. Wives are addressed first. They're treated as intelligent and capable. And husbands are given duties as well. You realize what this is? This is revolutionary. This is absolutely revolutionary, what we're reading here in the treatment of women. Richard Foster, who uh, is a Christian author, said this, Paul made decision makers out of those who were forbidden to make decisions. Do you know wherever Christianity has gone, the treatment of women has gone up not down. And if it doesn't go up, it's not Christianity, is it? It is a corruption of Christianity. When I was in seminary, I took a class on the Christian home taught by our beloved prof, Hendricks. And this is what he said. He said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. Well, what was he saying? He was saying the home is the ideal place for Christian relationships to be worked out. And if we are not treating our spouse the way Jesus would treat them, then there is something wrong with our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. 
And so I have to stand before you this morning and say, as a Christian pastor in Marquette, Michigan, my wife should be the best treated woman in town. I thought I'd get an amen from that. And I have to say, Lord, forgive me for the times and that's not been true. And Lord, help me to treat my wife the way I know Jesus would. Now, the second question we want to ask here is this question. What does submit really mean? What does submit really mean? Now, this word submit here probably is one of the most hated, despised, and most in misunderstood words in the Bible, right? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to allow Jill Briscoe, the wife of the well-known pastor Stuart Briscoe, to explain this word, because what she says is wonderful. Listen to Jill Briscoe. She says, the verb submit is in the middle voice, and it literally means place yourself in submission. We give you this voluntary choice, this act of will, rather than this legal requirement. Paul was after a heart attitude, a spirit of humility by choice, not coercion. What a rich statement that is. Paul was after a heart attitude, a spirit of humility by choice, not by coercion. You know, it's really not possible to force an adult to submit, is it? Not really. I mean, you can force a child to submit when a child is getting out of control and being rebellious. But if a man tries that on his wife, he's going to be demeaning her as a child. And I ask you this morning, how in the world is that going to work? It's not. It's not. That's why I like the word yield as a synonym for this word submit. In fact, I discovered in my study that there's a translation that actually use that, uses that word. It is the New Century Version, and this is how it translates this verse. Wives, yield to the authority of your husbands. I love that translation. Wives, yield to the authority of your husband. Yielding is something that you choose to do. You assess the road conditions, and you yield the right away. Uh, Joe Briscoe then explains it this way. Submission is giving way to someone else. It is the choice of wives to lay down their lives for their husbands. What a beautiful way to say it. Submission, says Jill Briscoe, is giving way to somebody else. It is the choice of wives to lay down their lives for their husbands. Now, you know, this is one way that we are going to solve the battle of the sexes in marriage. Because ever since the fall and ever since sin entered our lives, there has been a battle of the sexes in marriage. And if we're going to have marriages according to God's design, how in the world are we going to resolve that battle? Well, this is one way. I want to read for you this morning how Martin Luther described the marriages of his day. 
And when I read what he has to say about the marriages of his day in the 1500s, you know what you're going to say? You're going to say, not much has changed. Not much has changed. Listen to what Luther said. He said, the men are almost lions in their homes, hard toward their wives. The women, too, everywhere want to domineer and have their husbands as servants. It is foolish for a man to want to demonstrate his masculine power and heroic strength by ruling over his wife. On the other hand, the ambition of wives to dominate the home is also intolerable. Well, that's the battle of the sexes right there, isn't it? In marriage. You know what, some, you know what has to happen? Someone has to decide, I'm going to be a servant. Someone's got to say, in my marriage, I'm going to take the role of a servant. And a wife does that by yielding. And a husband does that by loving. That's why when the Apostle Paul summarizes his commands for husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, verse 33, this is what he says. He says, let the husband love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Well, there it is. There it is. We solve the battle of the sexes by the wife yielding and the husband loving. When I'm preparing young couples for marriage and we get to this point as we talk about this, this is what I say to a young bride getting ready to say I do to this groom of hers. I say yielding to your husband's leadership is your way of telling him I am not in competition with you for this marriage. I am in cooperation with you. When you yield to his leadership, what you are saying to him is, I am not competing with you for this marriage, but I am cooperating with you. Say, so let me ask you, what wise wife would not want her husband to be a good leader? What wise woman who, who wants a strong and healthy family would not say, I do not want my husband to learn to be a better leader? Well, obviously she knows that's good for me as a wife and it's very good for the children. Those daughters, they need to know what a real man is, don't they? See, one day they're going to grow up and, and some of those daughters are going to get married. And they need to know what a real man is. And those sons, they need to have demonstrated before them what it means for them to be a real man. And when a wife truly understands that, she doesn't discourage her husband's leadership. She encourages it. She encourages it. Now there's a third question that I want us to ask as we look at this text. Why is the Lordship of Christ involved? Why is the Lordship of Christ involved? Look at verse 18 again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
That word fitting there means proper as a duty. Proper as a duty. Now let me ask you, who's the duty towards here? It's toward the Lord, right? So this is the proper attitude and behavior of wives who own Christ as Lord. Listen to this. This is a Lordship of Christ issue. This is a Lordship of Christ issue. And if we ask the question, why, I think there are at least two answers. Number one, it's a whole lot easier to do something when you know it pleases Jesus, right? When you know that you're pleasing Jesus, and you know that he will bless you because you are pleasing him, it's just a whole lot easier to do that. You see, when a wife encourages the leadership of her husband, she's actually cooperating with Jesus. That's what she's doing. Now, all of us know in our Christian experience that there are things that are very challenging and difficult for us to do as we follow the Lord. But we do them anyway, don't we? Because we know they please Him. And we know He will bless us if we are pleasing Him. There's a Christian couple by the name of Jim and Sally Conway. And I want you to listen to what they said. It's easier to serve your mate if you envision your loving Lord rather than your flawed spouse. All God's people said, course it is our spouses are flawed they're limited they have feelings but Jesus is our loving Lord so say the Conways picture doing it for Jesus the imposition then becomes an honor Lord says the Christian wife I'm doing this for you and what an honor that is. I think there's a second reason why the Lordship of Christ is involved here. This also sets the limits on yielding, doesn't it? It sets the limits on yielding. Who's at the top of the chart in marriage? Amen. Jesus is at the top of the chart in marriage. Therefore, abusive leadership is out of his will and is not to be yielded to. There is no place in marriage for yielding to meanness, cruelty, improper conduct. All such demeaning leadership must be challenged because Jesus is Lord of the husband too. Amen this morning? So clearly, this is not calling on women to be pipsqueaks in their marriage, is it? It's not saying a woman can never say, I disagree with that. That's not fair. No, because Jesus is the Lord. He's at the top of the chart in this marriage. Therefore, the Christian woman's greatest responsibility is to her Lord as she follows out this duty to him. And therefore, it sets the limit on yielding as well. 
Well, now, there is a fourth question as we look at this text. And the fourth question is this. What is the impact upon the husband? What is the impact upon the husband of the wife fulfilling her role that God has given to her in the design of marriage? Well, did you notice that each spouse is called to focus on their duties, not each other's? Did you notice that? Husbands are not called here to uh, force their wives to submit. Wives are not called on to force their husbands to love. And we say, why? Well, we can't ultimately change another person, can we? Ultimately, we cannot change another person. When you counsel a couple and you prepare them for their marriage, what you say to them is, you marry each other just as you are, not as you wish each other to be. When Ellen married me, she married me just as I was, not as she hoped someday I would become. And when I married Ellen, I married her for the woman that she was, not for the person that someday I wished she would become. You know what Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, one day said? She said it was a great day in her life when she realized it was not her job to change her husband. She said this, it was my job to love Billy and God's job to change him. Now let me just pause there. This doesn't mean it's wrong for us never to suggest to our spouse that they need to change. Okay? I mean, why in the world would God join us together, right? If we're not to help each other become a better person, right? So, of course, we are going to, in the course of our marriage, in appropriate ways, tell each other there are things that need to change. But you can't make the change happen in the other person, can you? You can't do that. Who's the only one you can change? Yourself with God's help. And God knows that. Do you know God knows something else as well? When you change yourself, you're more likely to change your spouse. Right? When you change yourself, you are more likely to change your spouse. You see, when two people are committed to fulfilling the roles that God has given to them, that is God's design. God made men to want a certain thing. That thing, says Paul, is respect. God made women to want a certain thing. That thing, says the Apostle Paul, is love. When we provide that for our spouses, it fulfills them, it satisfies how they're made. And I'll tell you what, when you are satisfied how you're made, that's a huge motivation to change, isn't it? Of course it is. You see, marriages that are growing and changing are where both partners are focused on their own role. Marriages that are growing and changing are marriages where both partners are focused 
on their own role. That's how you change your partner. All of us know uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, the quadriplegic, who's had an international ministry to uh, multitudes of handicapped people. Do you know the older you get as a quadriplegic, the more challenging it is? Because as your body gets older and ages, it's harder to live as a quadriplegic. Earlier this last year, the word went out that Johnny had gotten COVID-19, and we were asked all around the world to pray for her because she's older now as a quadriplegic. Listen to what she said when she married her husband, whose name I believe is Ken. She said, I never got married to get my needs met. Now think about that. A quadriplegic is a bundle of needs. You marry a quadriplegic as a man and you're going to spend a huge amount of time caring for your wife's needs. Listen to what Johnny says. I never got married to get my needs met. My husband does not exist to meet my needs. I exist to meet his needs. And incidentally, while I'm doing that, a couple of my needs might get met. Surprise, surprise. That is the joy, I think, of being married. It's also the joy of ministering. She's hit it right on the head. Brothers and sisters, she's hit it right on the head. You know why God joined you together as a couple? So you could minister to each other. That's why He brought you together. And in ministering to each other, you meet each other's needs. And as you meet each other's needs, that is so satisfying that it is a motivation to change. And therefore, when you have two partners who are sold out because they love Jesus to ministering to one another, as the Bible says, you have a marriage that will be growing and changing and become the marriage that all of us want our marriages to be. How wise is God? How wise is God? Let's bow together, shall we, and thank Him for His great wisdom. Lord God, we're so thankful that you care about every aspect of our lives. Nothing is omitted from your revelation. And you care about our marriages far more, Lord, than we do. And because you design marriage, you know how it ought to work. Help us, Lord, not to li listen to the voices of a very confused culture. Help us, Lord, to recognize that there is a clear standard that is true 
and right and wise. And I pray for each couple here today, Father. We all live with flawed spouses. We married each other just as we were. Not realizing that as we got to know each other better, there would be many disappointments and struggles and things that didn't change as we hoped they would. But we thank you, Lord, that with Jesus in our lives and in our marriage, and as we live under his lordship, and do what we do because it pleases him, that first and foremost, we can change. Husbands can change and, and wives can change. And the battle of the sexes does not need to rip us apart. But instead, we can be in a growing and changing marriage because we're focusing on what you have called us to do and to be. And so, Lord, we know it's true that marriage is 90% hard work. It's only 10% romantic episodes. It's two incompatible people learning how to live compatibly because they're following their Lord. And so bless each and every couple here today, each and every marriage, each and every family, as we follow you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.